Hey you dunkers, travelers, and double dribblers, and thanks a hell of a lot for checking out the 46th edition of Scoring at the Movies. We review sports flicks that came out quite a long time ago, and we always spoil every little bit of them. I'm the some game haver who could never dribble or shoot with his left hand, but has on occasion hugged a tombstone, Ryan Ellis. And here's the trash talker who keeps an entire newspaper page in his sock while shooting hoops with his friends, Lord Chris Gregorio. Thanks, Ryan, but I'd prefer if you would call me White Chocolate for this episode. <laughs> Lord White Chocolate. Lord White Chocolate. <laughs> Isn't it Jake that hugs the tombstone? Yes. And, and... I mixed a mash a little bit there. Uh, like I've done many that, other that times. was a little bit of a character bleed. Okay. I'm usually just not paying attention until I hear my name, and then I perk up. <laughs> what? Me? Oh, wait, right. We're recording. I'm like, I'm like a dog. What? Chris? Yeah. Did you get the reference to the newspaper in the sock? I did. That's Boogie. Boogie pulls it out to show Jesus saves, baby. Keeps it on hand in case he needs it. I'm not Boogie Booger. Booger, yes. Yeah, yeah. What a great nickname for a teenager. And I am also much like Booger, all of five foot four and near illiterate, right? And also That's a hanger-on, as we learn in the flashback sequences, a hanger-on at dinner. I just want to get fed by somebody, please, please, please. I don't know why he sounded southern there a little bit. That is more accurate. When he's told to get the hell out and leave the bread behind because he's always eating their damn bread. That is something that I experience, as you well know, whenever I visit somebody for dinner. I eat everything. we got to make sure to make extra pieces of chicken or steak when we have you over. <laughs> if we have four people, better make five pieces. All right, crack open the drink right away. I see you have had that one before. It's but... the old standby for basketball movies. I will say... I, well, I, tell us what it is. Oh, the jam up the mash. Right. I was originally going to go with a little Paps Blue Ribbon for this bad boy. I thought malt liquor would be the way to go, but then that seemed a little bit disgusting from a taste perspective and also not the kindest thing to do in reference to malt liquor being a problem in some of the poor areas of New York. However, one thing about this movie that I made a note about is that... There it is. Crack the thing open. Fully work. Nicely done. I'm drinking, incidentally, some Woodford Reserve bourbon. But one thing about this movie that I did notice that people criticize Do the Right Thing for, there were no drugs... There were no... Well, there's a little bit of drinking in that, because the old man... Quite a bit of drinking. Damea. And no, I'm sorry, and do the right thing. Oh, I'm sorry. And no guns. This. Yeah. Not really, anyway. This movie's got all three of those. Because they said yes. in do the right thing that it wasn't very realistic, and Spike Lee thought people were racist when they said that. Maybe he was right that they were. But those things do exist in any neighborhood. This movie, with all these characters set in Coney Island, we see plenty of all those things. I'm not sure that was a response to the movie he'd made, do the right thing, nine years before. Yeah. There you go. I think it's just more accurate to this place at this time. I think Coney Island has gentrified and revitalized itself a little bit. But these are the projects in 1998. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, all of those things would be prevalent, which is why it kind of felt like having a pretentious sour beer like Jam Up the Mash might not be the best fit for this movie, but at the same time, I just couldn't bring myself to stomach Paps Blue Ribbon either. Not I was going to go with PBR, even though it's not in this movie, strictly because I think Milwaukee is where it came to be originally back in, I think, the 1940s. And, of course, Ray Allen, who plays Jesus Shuttleworth in this movie, was drafted and played for the Milwaukee Bucks. So that was my six degrees of beer separation with oh, okay. he got game there. And then I just threw it all away, much like Jesus throwing a ball over the fence and said, get the hell out of here, PBR. <laughs> Went back to jam up the mash. If you had recorded Blue Velvet with Bev and I many years ago, it would have been more appropriate than ever to do. Paps Blue Ribbon! 
Blue Velvet. Well, isn't there... Uh... No, well, that's what Dennis Hopper's character insists yeah. about beer. It can't be whatever it is. Heineken, I think, is what Kyle McLaughlin's character says he likes to drink. No, Pabst Blue Ribbon, motherfucker, or something like that. This is the Pabst sidebar. Pabst let's sidebar. get back into He Got Game, because it is the title that drives grammar teachers insane, and it was released by Touchstone, which is a Disney subsidiary, and that's interesting because this movie is a very hard R, as this podcast obviously will, because I just said motherfucker. <laughs> And it was released on May 1st, 1998. It was not a big success. After an opening weekend where it was number one at the box office, which Spike Lee had never done before, and I don't know if he's ever done since, the flick ended up losing just a little bit of money. It was basically a break-even, but you need to it do more than break-even to actually be a success. Money? It cost $25 million and it made oh. about 22 The cost doesn't surprise me because you got a few actors in here that, notably, of course, Denzel, that would command a lot of money. I don't think basically anybody else at this time in their career would command a huge payday, but it's not a visual effects movie. You're shooting it basically around New York. I can't imagine there's a ton of cost involved in a lot of aspects of it. Well, location shooting and also maybe the songs budget, Public Enemy songs, Public Enemy would not have been cheap. They run through the right thing as well. They're the band that sings Fight the Power. I didn't realize they had done that poorly at the box office. Well, it's not poor. It's just not the success. And it's interesting because it was the number one hit for that one week when it came out in May. Even in 1990, what did you say, six, eight? I can't remember. 98. Well, it only made about eight or nine million dollars. It wasn't like it made 50 or 60 the way movies do now, or even 100 or whatever it might yeah, be. 21 million dollars, even in 98, is a pretty poor showing, which is a little surprising for a Denzel movie. Yeah, Denzel was basically box office, despite what, was it Sony or Columbia, whoever it was, the infamous memos that came out that you can't have a black person open a movie in the Far East, which is, of course, such a crock. Denzel's movies have done well in the Far East, as, of course, Will Smith's movies have. Well, box office-wise, this was 84th that year. Saving Private Ryan, Bev and I covered that, was number one. The Waterboy, which I think we'll have to cover at some point, Adam Sandler movie, was number five. <laughs> that was the number five hit that year. I did not know it was that successful. Pleasantville, which Bev and I covered two years ago, was 51st. And Rounders, which you and I covered, was 80th. So He Got Game actually did a little worse than Rounders, which was also not exactly some blockbuster, which did have bigger stars, though. Damon and Norton, who were pretty much established at that point. Malkovich, of course. Yeah. John Turturro's in that movie and in this movie. A lot of Turturro connections. I even watched... Turturro's in three sports movies this one year, actually. Basketball movie here, small role. Card movie, which we made a sports movie in Rounders. And he's yeah. also in The Big Lebowski with the bowling. Yeah. He is playing, get this... Jesus. Jesus! And we have a Jesus in He Got Game. You don't often hear in He Got Game that Jesus is going to fuck you in the ass. It don't matter to Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a great touch, actually, if Ray Allen at one point had just licked the basketball before <laughs> shooting a shot or something like that. Just a little homage to the Big Lebowski. Especially the old ball his father has when... Jesus is a kid. That thing is dirty and ugly. I don't know about you, but I just had this image in my head. As soon as he hucked the ball over the fence and stormed off, I was just picturing in my mind's eye, just based on the two of us, Jake climbing up the fence, grabbing a snow shovel and trying to rake the ball back in towards himself. <laughs> and then, God damn it, that's not going to work. And then walking around the corner and sneaking into his neighbor's yard to try to find the ball. Yeah, we talked about this recently, how that happened to us last summer a couple of times. Balls went over our neighbor's fence just far enough the first time where we could actually get out with a shovel and rake combination yeah. while you on a ladder. Luckily, you're tall. But then other times we went so far away that we had no choice but to go in the backyard. Yeah, nothing more emasculating than two 40-ish-year-old men who are peering over the fence of the neighbor like scared children trying to get their ball back. It's very sandlotty. Uh, what are we going to do? I have some malt liquor I could give you in exchange. You don't need your backyard. <laughs> Please. One thing I should say before I forget, by the way, this is the first podcast you and I have recorded with the new microphone. Bev and I have done one podcast so far with it. We did Gladiator. Now you and I are doing He Got Game with the brand new Yeti microphone. So I'll say the same thing I said in that podcast, which is if the audio level isn't quite what people want, 
We'll work at it as we go along. We might eventually get two microphones, actually, and then we can do the old NPR thing where we talk right into it like this and be really cool. Are you going to ASMR things going forward? <laughs> I'm just going to crinkle my tissue for 30 seconds. That'll pick up even more, so be careful. Just like your beer being set down on the desk will be picked up even more. All right, well, I'll nutshell the movie while you're rubbing your nose. In a nutshell, convicted murderer is allowed to roam free because governor cares way too much about college sports. Yeah, I love the touch in this movie. They don't actually name colleges that Jesus is looking to play for. You got Big, big state, state and Tech U. <laughs> yeah. Fuck you, Tech U. I guess there wasn't the budget to try to license the school's names, or maybe they couldn't get them on board with the subject matter or whatever, because so much of the movie centers around a lot of the questionable recruiting practices, both of agents, family members, but also schools. And we see that with Turturro's character. Even though he doesn't do anything too untoward, there's always the understood implication that he's involved in whatever the... Getting him laid. Well, yeah, getting him laid, first and foremost. Which is cool and all, but it's obviously bribing him or trying to bribe him. And Rick Fox is the guy, the basketball player from the Lakers and Celtics and whatnot, who had a pretty solid career, is the guy playing that character. And a great name, possibly the best name in a movie that includes Jesus Shuttleworth. Shuttles. Shuttlesworth, sorry. Chick Deegan. It sounds Mm. like a 1950s greaser that nobody likes chick spike's pretty good at naming characters though he's got some pretty good names in all of his movies over the years and of course he did write direct and produce this using his old friend denzel who hasn't really worked with as much since this movie they did inside man about eight years later and i don't know if they've worked together since have they i'm not terribly familiar with a lot of spike lee's ladder works well he won an oscar for black klansman two years ago still haven't seen black klansman i saw inside man i think that's the last movie i've seen by spike lee this is an interesting movie, though, not to skip to the end or anything. Oh, we always skip around. What do you think? What's your rating? What's your score? I won't give my rating or score just yet, but okay. I'll say this, because it's a movie I saw, not in theaters, but as soon as it released on probably tape. At the time, I thought it was okay, but I didn't like it on the whole. Okay. There's a lot of aspects of this movie that I think really appeal to a more mature audience who understands a little bit more about the way college recruiting works in the States and how somebody under the influences that Jesus would be under would struggle. So much of the movie is carried on the relationship between Jesus and his father, of course, but also on the internal strife that somebody in that position has to be going through. Are you going to do the right thing? Are you going to do the thing that's going to benefit yourself financially? Are you going to give in to all of the demands of everybody around you? What is it going to be? Are you going to be a man of integrity or not? And that kind of thing was a little bit lost in me when I was an idiot teenager. You had no integrity whatsoever. None. And I still don't. But I appreciate the struggle a little bit more now. You can spell integrity now. Yeah, exactly. I-N-T... Never mind that. (laughs) I enjoyed that aspect of it more. And I enjoyed Denzel's performance a lot more. But then there were other aspects of the movie that fell flat for me. On the whole, it felt a little bit uneven, I guess, is the best way of putting it. That's true about a lot of Spike Lee movies, actually. Yeah? Yeah, I've seen... Maybe everything he's made, certainly almost everything he's made. And apart from Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, despite the length, I think is not really guilty of this either. Bev and I cover both Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X. You can go back and listen to those episodes if you want to at any old time. And Do the Right Thing, I don't think has any problems at all. It's an excellent movie. Apart from that one criticism I've heard before, maybe they're right in saying it isn't quite as true to life by not having drugs and guns and a lot of liquor the way that you might have had in a neighborhood like Bed-Stuy. Malcolm X, despite its length, I don't think it really has a lot of weaknesses. It's a damn good film. And incidentally, we covered The Hurricane, which is not Spike Lee, but it is a Denzel movie. We covered that not that long ago, and that's a boxing movie. And he's in jail on that film. He's in jail on this film. And he ends up in jail for a while on Malcolm X. So Denzel's big movies a lot of times, and he's a cop in Training Day who probably should be in jail. (laughs) Guy spent a lot of time behind bars in his movie career. 
Well, but Spike Lee's movies, yeah, they've been flawed a lot of the time. Black Klansman, I mentioned that a few minutes ago, is very flawed. There's some excellent stuff in it. But the racists are always racist, which I know is understandable. But every time we see them, it's always about hating black people. And they're such a caricature. The screenplay won the Oscar. It's not a great script. It's a pretty decent script. It's inconsistent, like you just said, about He Got Game. I don't know if He Got Game actually is that all over the place, like you're saying it is. Well, let me qualify that statement a little bit, because I don't think it's all over the place. I think there's aspects of it that just happen to work a lot better than others. Do you like Denzel's relationship with Milo Jovovich? Is it even no. necessary? That is one of the things I wanted to point out as not really working for me. Denzel, I think, is fantastic in this movie and the role. Mila is fine. She doesn't have a ton to do. She was least. 21. Why is she, she? She was a kid. She looks the same now that she did yeah. in 98. She's not it's aging. crazy. And also, speaking of ages, Rosario Dawson, who's my crush in the history of Hollywood, I've got 200 I can put on this list, maybe even 5,000, the laminated list, if you will, like Friends. But you talk about the ultimate crushes, she's certainly one of them, especially, well, okay, maybe not when she's 18. But as we got into a little bit further on, and also a good actress like her a lot, this was only her second movie. She was discovered for kids three years before this, so she yeah. was even younger when she made that movie. I wanted to ask you about Rosario specifically as well. I'll finish up the, uh, the Mila, Mila thing. Yes. I don't think it was necessary. I don't really know what that was intended to accomplish for the movie, that entire relationship. I mean, obviously, at the end of it all, he's opened her eyes a little bit, and she's out of there, and she's trying to get her life back together. I'm going home. We get Denzel's character. He's presumably not an awful human being. Definitely not. But a very flawed human being with a lot of anger issues, a lot of probably inherited child-raising issues. He's a very strict authoritarian figure, and these kinds of things are often learned behaviors. Regardless of your cultural background, you will often learn from your parents how you will raise your own children. Even if you don't want to, that's what you become, too. He clearly loves his wife very much, and the accident that caused his wife's death was just that, an accident, but also a direct result of his anger, and again, the way he treats his son, the way he treats his family generally. It's also pointed out repeatedly that he loved his wife. He loves his kids. He's not a terrible dude. So why do you need this kind of showing him being a nice guy and trying to redeem the other? Because it doesn't do anything. As far as his relationship with Jesus goes, it changes nothing. What happened between them is a very particular aspect of Jake's personality and a very specific relationship. I didn't see the need for it. It didn't eat up a crap ton of screen time maybe 15 minutes. She's but the movie so. is pretty long, though. It's about two hours and 18 or so minutes. Is it that long? So that's it didn't feel that a long, decent chunk of time. I wanted to ask you about Rosario's character, though. Yeah. The character is much more interesting, obviously. She's like the rock. She speaks in third person. What's Lala going to get out of this? Exactly. But as you pointed out, she was only 18, Rosario Dawson was. When, in reality, yeah. In reality. When well, she's, I guess the character's probably about the same. Yeah, it would have been 17, 18, 19, somewhere in that range. So a later scene after Jesus is visited, I think it's Tech U's campus where Chick Deacon gets him laid and all yeah, that kind, tech of, kind of stuff. And he comes back and he goes to the carnival with Lala and they have a little bit of a discussion slash confrontation about the fact that she's banging her, what's the friend's name that's associated with the agents? Ooh, I forget his name. But yeah, it's a friend of both of theirs, I guess, or definitely her friend. It's her friend. And but she, he just came back from sleeping with two white women. Did you? Didn't you? Is it okay for you? Is it okay for me? And it's meant to be a very candid and intense scene between two people that have been in a long-term relationship. We find out she had an abortion. She had an abortion, that's right. And on one hand, you've got Ray Allen, who's a basketball player turned actor for this particular role only. Okay. And on the other hand, you've got Rosario Dawson, who is strictly an actress, albeit a very young one, and like mm -hmm. you said, only her second role. So I was watching this thinking, yeah, this isn't really playing too much for me. And Allison came in and just watched it for 30 seconds. She said, they're terrible actors. And then she walked out again. 
<laughs> and I thought, you know what? She's not wrong. Ray Allen, you can only expect so much from. I think he does a credible job. I think he's quite good in the movie for a non-actor. Yeah, for what he's asked to do. And this movie is basically centered on him. If Denzel's not on screen, it's all on Ray Allen. Yeah. So more power to him for the work he did in it. But I was a little disappointed with how Rosario played her character, even at the age of 18. I thought there were moments where it rang totally hollow to me. I don't know why. Maybe it's like when I watched Click just last night, which I haven't seen in a long time. <laughs> An apt comparison. I'm going to make a comparison here in a second. <laughs> Kate Beckinsale. This is 2006 at this point that movie's out. So she's this is the Adam around mid-30s. Adam Sandler movie. Okay. One of the many unrealistic women he was ever with as a wife in movies. just like when he was a Salma Hayek in the Grown Ups films. Anyway, Kate Beckinsale, prime of her life. I couldn't take my eyes off her. Maybe it's the same thing with Rosario Dawson, where I'm so biased. Rosario Dawson's, I just said, one of my all-time crushes in the history of Hollywood. Elizabeth Banks is certainly in there as well. Yep. But you talk about just purely most beautiful women who've ever done this for a job. Partly because when she was on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert a couple years ago, promoting something, Kate Beckinsale came out and Bev and I said, that is the poster child you'd send to Venus, to the aliens, whatever, to say, this is perfection on this planet. Not necessarily sexually, just absolute beauty. So maybe it was the same thing with me in this. I didn't see Rosario Dawson's flaws, if there are some, if you guys are right, because I was so transfixed by the fact I've always thought she was cool <laughs> and a pretty good actress in general and so damn hot. And she worked with Spike Lee again a couple years later in 25th Hour, where I think she's pretty good. Well, this is the thing, though. I've seen Rosario, obviously, in a number of You've things. You've liked her in other things? Yes. She has a recurring role in a lot of the Marvel stuff, right, to do with Daredevil and things like that. She's a very good actress. Maybe that's why I dislike the performance so much is because now that I know her for who she is versus back in 98 when I had no clue who Rosario Dawson was, I know how good she can be. But I have to ask, given what you just described, as far as your built-in beer goggles for Rosario Dawson. <laughs> These idols I have. Whenever she appeared on screen, how many little cartoony turtle doves slash pink hearts popping around her head tended to appear on screen. 10, 20... It was it? overwhelming. It was over. Okay, that makes a lot of sense then. And I know I sound a little bit weird as a 46-year-old talking about somebody who's 18 at the time, but I also know her from other things, oh, that's it. in fairness. And I watched Clerks 2 again recently. I always loved her in that movie, both because she's fun and cool and funny, and just height of perfection when it comes to her attractiveness. And she's not really even dressed up all that well in that movie, but that's how great-looking she is. And by the way, you talk about can you score at movies? This is maybe the sexiest movie we've ever done, or one of the sexiest movies we've oh, ever yeah. done. Not only because there's a lot of sex scenes. The one Ray Allen has with the two prostitutes because they're probably prostitutes they're at least strippers with those fake tits and everything the perfect bodies but also exaggeratedly perfect Barbie oh, I, I bodies. Tech you. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a hot scene when jake's with dakota and they have their well, i thought i haven't seen this movie in a long time it was a sex scene but it's i guess implying he can't get it up because his pants are still on and it looks like he's actually fucking i thought it was a sex scene i thought it was just like a through the fly kind of moment for him it might not have been the most graphically accurate sex scene in the maybe world, it's supposed to be that he got off too fast then if that's what we're talking I about think because that's more it. he's apologizing and she's saying we have all night that was my okay. takeaway from but that regardless well. of what really happened there whether he couldn't get it up or whether he got off through his pants on the fly down that scene was pretty hot too part and parcel of this movie when we talked about jesus being courted by everybody to declare for a university they want his body ironically that's a sexual thing in some they ways do. ray allen is ripped the guy's got probably three percent body fat at this point but that includes women throwing themselves at him sometimes yeah. it's somebody like lala throwing herself at him the because... girls of the campus attack you there was yeah. the four of them they all kiss him we don't even know this guy but he might come to the school so let's all kiss and bye we'll see you later that was actually far more disturbing to me again this plays into some of the things i appreciated about this movie now that it wouldn't have back then you understand why Lala is doing what she's doing because she's, again, in an impoverished situation and the way that she can foresee getting out of it is by hitching herself to Jesus's star by any means necessary. When you get these girls at Tech U, whether or not it's on explicit instruction from Chick or from John Turturro's coach character, whoever it is, 
they are so clearly being prostituted just to get Jesus to go to the school. It's cringeworthy. Not inaccurate. I understand why it's in the movie. Yeah, it I bet it happens in reality. I bet it happens a oh, lot in reality. 100%. I'm Those sure. girls may have all been promised better grades. And I bet Maybe it's very possible. Money, like, could have been flat out money. money. True. The school's probably got a lot of money. People could also just say, this man's hot. And he's young. And he's cool. And it could be the cliche about the big dick black guy. So I don't even need anything to go after this guy. It could be all of those things wrapped up. Or way. it could be the same motivations that Lala has. They all know who Jesus is. They know Jesus of Coney Island. When he's introduced to the girls at the universities, they go, oh, you're Jesus of Coney Island? He's a national star. He's the number one prospect, or yeah. number two or three. Denzel, I like when he's talking to Ned Beatty. That was a good line. He may be number two or number three, and then about a second later he's saying, yeah, he's number one, but. Yeah. <laughs> False humility kind of moment. So there. Jesus is going to be very rich in a very short period of time, a year or two, whenever he actually goes to the NBA. So maybe it's just a case of maybe I can get a hold of this guy now, and if I can seduce him now, maybe that means a lot of money for me down the line. I don't know. It's a very cynical movie in a lot of ways when it comes to talking about everybody's motivations, up to and including Jesus in this. And his uncle. That character is one of my favorites in the movie because he is so outwardly and explicitly out for number one implying that he was out for number one right from the get-go. Yeah, well, that was his niece and nephew, who he, I guess, in some ways helped raise. I bet it was more the aunt. And obviously, Jesus yes. has been raising his own sister. I don't know how long, but for many years, maybe when he was 10 or so. But the uncle was involved in raising her, too, raising them, too. But yes, then he wants a handout. He gets this car he shouldn't have because it could get Jesus in trouble. A Lexus, right? Or is it an Acura? It was one of the two. I don't know anything about cars, as we've established. Oh, he says, you like the new Acura, and he gives like a model number or something. And we talked about when we did blue chips a couple of months ago, that if you just even right. have this stuff, well, then aren't you culpable? And it's bullshit. We talked about that in that podcast, too. The hypocrisy. Okay, student athlete who has nothing, don't you dare take anything from recruiters, but the people that actually try to bribe you, no, they get away scot-free. That's played up pretty well, too, in the scene where Jesus is taken to visit the agent. Whoever Lala's friend's name, I can't remember the guy's name, for the actor's name, says, come meet my partner and we'll talk for five minutes. And it's the whole, here, take these car keys, this quarter of a million dollar Lambo is yours, and I don't see anybody else here. What, bro? Yeah. Nothing happened. Here, have this watch. It's worth $35,000. It's incredibly hypocritical that everybody around this kid will enrich themselves, including the coach, the school, whoever it is. But you can't enrich yourself and your family. Until and, you turn pro. Until you turn pro. And you make the argument, well, okay, they get a full scholarship. That may well be true, but if you're somebody like Jesus in this movie, and I think Dwayne Wade is a famous example of this, if I'm not mistaken. He either had a child himself or he was raising his sister when he was going to Marquette. But you get a full scholarship, so okay, great. You might be yourself able to live in the dormitories. You might get a free ride through school, financially speaking. You might be able to go to the cafeteria and have your meals paid for. But you still have a family to look after. And how do you do that yourself, knowing that they're struggling to live off of ramen noodles or something because you have no money, no job, and you're in the gym every morning at 7 a.m., go to class, go back to the gym? It's an argument you've heard time and again before this movie was made and obviously in the years since, the argument that a scholarship is sufficient compensation for student-athletes just doesn't hold water when you really look at the details of these young men's lives, or young women's lives now when we're talking exactly, about 2020. Yeah. Well, the big thing about this, too, is that the two big college sports are football and basketball, right? Yes. There are other things, but those are the two main ones. And what comprises the racial output, outlook, whatever, of those two sports primarily? Young black men. This might happen if it was young white men predominantly, but I wonder if it would be quite the same thing. 
I think it would be, to be honest with you, because a lot of these rules that dictate the you can't get money for this kind of stuff, those are NCAA rules that date back to the 1950s, right? And at that point, it was predominantly white men at okay. that point, right? All right. I understand what you're saying. You're not wrong. And you talked about a sport like basketball and a sport like football. The reason those sports are outlets for young men in impoverished situations like Jesus in Coney Island is because it's so cheap. All you need is a ball. And then you go down the hoop and you shoot for the next eight hours. Hockey is such a freaking expensive yeah. sport because you need all the equipment. You need to pay to rent rink time. You have all these ancillary costs. Golf's very expensive, as oh, you all God, know. Yeah, no, all too well. Even though the basic idea of that game is not an expensive game. Yeah, but when you get a ball on a field, right? Yeah, but yeah. getting the green fees and getting to oh, actually God. getting on the links, the course, that's where it's expensive. Yeah, absolutely. The choice to cast a basketball player in one of the lead roles in this movie was an interesting one by Spike, particularly since you don't get a ton of basketball action. You get some highlight clips of Jesus, obviously, and you've got the climactic one-on-one -on -one right. game with Denzel. The opening montage is about three minutes long, slow-mo. It's all a bunch of American kids and teenagers, mostly males, yes. some girls, mostly boys. But not Jesus. Shooting hoops. Not much of Jesus, anyway. Not really, no. It's not really about him. It's just showing kids playing basketball. Yes. And it seems to be across America, and the idea is that both they like this, but also this might be their future, they hope, anyway. We also see Jake and Attica also shooting hoops in slow motion, because he's been in jail for many years at that point. I just had images of Ryan Ellis shooting hoops in the backyard when watching Jake, because he's just so smooth, just making shot after shot, yelling out, Butter. <laughs> Jake's form, or Denzel's form, even though he's obviously a good player, is not my favorite way of shooting. It almost reminds me of, was it Bill Cartwright, the way he would shoot free throws? He goes free so throws? far back behind yeah. his head. As I recall, Bill Cartwright, who played yes. for the Bulls for many years, the same comparison. kind of thing. It's not a bad thing, but he doesn't look like he's textbook shooting. But if it works for you, then it works for you. It's like Julio Franco's batting stance. <laughs> who cares if it looks weird as long as it works for you? But then that's one of the things about this movie that works. When you talk about the sports action that is in it, and we've covered a lot of movies lately that haven't had that much sports action, to almost not even sports movies in Point Break and Fast and the Furious. Which I will didn't not have, hear that from you, Ryan. didn't have that much sports action, even what actually is sports in that. And now here with an actual sports movie with, as we just said, not that much sports with basketball. But what is in it? Maybe because it's directed by a guy who's a big basketball fan and knows oh, the yeah. sport, is really good. It's excellent. Yeah, so yeah. if there's 10 total minutes or 15 total minutes of basketball, especially the one-on-one -on -one with Denzel and Ray Allen at the end, is top-notch. And you also cast an actor who can play. And then you cast a real NBA guy. Apparently, the climactic match was supposed to be won by Jesus, 15 to nothing, just to show oh. how much better he is than his father. Because at one point, when Jake meets the daughter, he seems like he doesn't want to accept that Jesus could be better than him now. I think she even says, oh, he's better than you, Daddy. He has a look right. on his face. Oh, yeah, really? Sure. Yeah. But then when he plays them, the idea in the original screenplay was going to be he lost completely, didn't even get one point. But I guess when they played sort of for real, maybe in rehearsals or whatever it was, Denzel got an early lead. And as I recall in the movie itself, maybe this is what happened and they decided to go with this. He didn't go hard to the hoop because Ray Allen probably would have stopped him. For one thing, he's taller and he's better and he's younger. But Denzel just popped some outside shots and put them in. Yeah. And you get to keep the ball the way they're playing whenever you score until the guy takes the ball away from you. It's not that you score and the other guy gets the ball. Or was it like, anyway. No, no, you keep it until you Right, so it that's off. why Denzel got the early lead, or Jake got the early lead on him in the first place. But I guess that's actually what happened with the two actors. Is it? Well, that's the actor funny. and the basketball player in reality. Jake pops out to like a 2 nothing lead or something and then gives it up to Jesus. But the final score is not 15-2 to two either. It's something, or not 15, sorry. It was 11, I guess is what they played to. I think it was 11-5 or something was the final. But like, Jake had a 5-2 to two or 3 lead at one point, And then it was just nothing but baskets for Jesus. Yeah, exactly. And you could see that Jake gets tired for one thing. I really liked that scene as much for the basketball as for the banter. Because there's a lot of callbacks also to the yep. earlier scenes you get between Jake and young Jesus. 
I don't know how old Jesus is meant to be. I don't think they ever specifically say. Maybe 10? He's about 10 or 11, but obviously much, much smaller than Denzel. And part of it is Denzel's character is trying to teach him. You gotta Stop be, pushing me, man. Yeah, Stop you, pushing me, well, man. You're going to get mad. You're going to give up the second somebody gets physical with you. And again, this plays into the flaws of the character. I also wonder, by the way, if he might be a little bit drunk. Because the guy oh, who's he, off to the side is holding the booze yeah. bag for him. The booze bag. And he takes a couple of different sips during that sequence. And it seems to me, and he's also more aggressive than ever in that sequence. Yes. Including pushing the wife down. So maybe he wouldn't have pushed her down had he been stone cold sober. So maybe the idea is whether it's not generally, but at least in that one night, he was drunk on top of everything else. And he's a mean drunk. If I was drunk doing that, I'd be a happy drunk. But I'm, <laughs> I just happen to be like that. Just take the shot. It's fine. <laughs> That scene reminded me so much, and I always bring this up when it comes to mentor-mentee relationships, yeah. of whiplash. The argument in that podcast, Bev and I had, or the discussion we had of what is good teaching? If it makes the young person who wants to do this even better than he was or she was, is the brutalization of them justified? And I yeah. still don't know how I feel about that in that movie in Whiplash or now in this movie in He Got Game. It did work in some ways for Jesus. It's essentially do the ends justify the means, right? I know. Part of the implication of that scene is that it almost got to the point where he made Jesus hate the game yes, that he loved. That would be tragic if that's what, what exactly. it was. That is what I took away from that scene where it all ends with Jesus saying, screw this. He throws the ball over the fence in a fit of childish peak and then storms back home. He's both saying, screw that specific game. Oh, dad, yeah, right. Also, screw the game. Maybe period. permanently. Okay, yeah, yeah. That all goes out the window because of then what happens back home with the accident with his mother that leads to her death. You've got that potential ramification that you've robbed Jesus, a kid that at that point really hadn't had the opportunity to explore his full potential. You're also clearly being abusive in the way you're dealing with the kid. I do agree. I think there's a strong possibility that they're trying to imply that he is drunk. And later in the movie, there's comments that Jake makes that lead you to believe that he was a deeply unhappy and unsatisfied man in a lot of ways. He talks in one of the final monologues where he's sitting in a cell and Jesus is finally reading one of his letters. Yeah. And he talks about how I wanted you to be the basketball player I never was, right. right? As he loses the final game against grown-up Jesus, he says, you got to let go of that hate or you'll be just another N-word, you know, N-word just like me. And I think, that seems to be what convinces Jesus, too, that one sentence. And you can understand why to a certain degree, because at that stage, he's won, but it's like, okay, well, you've tasted the hollow victory, and it's not so great, and this is still your father, and he's accepting defeat and telling you, listen, you do what you got to do, you're a man, your future's in your hands, but just don't make the mistakes I made. So he's saying, don't do what I did. By the way, just like in Shawshank Redemption, that's more about proof. Because Andy goes to jail for two consecutive life sentences when they don't have the weapon and they can't prove that he killed his wife and her lover. Right. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. It should have been that he would either get off, especially when he was a rich banker, or that he wouldn't be tried and convicted for two straight life sentences. So in this movie, maybe because it's a black person, maybe that's Spike Lee with some subtle writing in there. Why would Jake go to jail for murder for as many years as he did? It seems like he's got something like a 25-year sentence or something like that. Because he's, what is it, six or seven years into it, and he's got another 10 or so to go. So what's that? 15, I think they say. He's okay, got so there 15. you go. So not 25, but still a long time. For what a good lawyer would say was involuntary manslaughter. So yeah. maybe he goes to jail, but not for that many years. And he didn't mean to do it. The way the scene shows it, maybe his son testified against him. The daughter didn't win. It was just the son that did. And it's not cool. Jake pushed his wife. That's not cool. She was trying to stop him from... Slapping, I guess he wasn't punching, but he was slapping his He's son. Just being None of that was okay. Where he was pushing around a little bit. None yeah. of that was cool, but he didn't mean to kill her. 
And when he first walks into the house after that whole thing happened with Jesus on the basketball court and they continue the fight back in the apartment. But when he first walks in, he kisses his wife very passionately. It's almost like when dinner's over and I'm mad at him right now, but when he goes to bed and dinner's over, we're gonna fuck. <laughs> so he's not mad at her. He is when he pushes her. I'm not excusing the fact he pushed her, but he didn't mean to kill her. So how does he get 15 years for that? Could be a bad lawyer. Could be the subtext that he's a black yeah. man. So he gets railroaded. I don't know enough about sentencing laws in the States to really say. And maybe this is me just reading into that relationship between Jake and his wife. And like you so eloquently said, their passionate relationship, even in the face of some of the anger issues. That's a very passionate kiss. It is. And I think it would have been a much better scene if he had just explicitly said the line that you just said in exactly the way you said it. (laughs) When this little asshole goes to bed, we're going to (laughs) fuck. Yeah, just really holding it and vibrating on the fuck. But I got the impression that it wasn't even a trial, that Jake had just pled guilty to the murder. At no point in the movie does he ever say he was innocent, that he didn't do it. It was an accident that he can't take back, but he did it. So maybe you get more than 15 years if you were actually tried for murder and you were found guilty, I guess, wouldn't you? Yeah, you wouldn't only get 15 years for that. I do think you're also correct in saying it wouldn't be murder. It would be some form of manslaughter, but... It could be a combination of things. It could have been a subtle jab by Spike Lee saying, here is a crime that, while he's guilty, should have been less than whatever number of years. if he was white, this would not be happening. Yeah, if he was white, it would have been five to ten years. But because he's black, he didn't get manslaughter. He got murder. I got the impression that it is one of the things that Jake is both sad and regretful about throughout the movie is, of course, what happened with him and his wife. Because, like you said, they clearly did love each other. Even if they had a relationship that had issues, most notably Jake's apparent anger issues and potential alcohol abuse, depending on how you want to read that scene with the what I took to be malt liquor in the bag and the, yeah. the court. It must have changed in jail, though, because I don't think he goes on any kind of drinking bender when he's free. We do like see I him drink, the... though. Okay, but he's not getting loaded like you no, think no, he no, might. No. I... He is really free, considering he's got that thing on his ankle, so he's not going to go too far. But he is really free and allowed to do an awful lot of things. Like I said before, the governor's taking an awful risk. Bad PR. And then, of course, what they do is they do railroad him by saying, oh, he escaped. Because Jesus goes to the school that the fucking governor wanted, but then the governor screws over Jake. I thought that was a nice touch at the end of the movie. The Ned Beatty warden character makes a point at the beginning of the movie to say the governor takes care of people that help him out. He takes care of his friends. And he did not do that in this case. (laughs) Yeah, on a freaking legal technicality. Jesus didn't technically sign the letter of intent that we gave you a week to get him to sign, even though he went to big state... It might have been on his own. We don't know. So therefore, you're not going to get the benefit of the deal we cut with you earlier on. That, I think, was specifically meant to be a little bit of a jab at... The justice system? At the justice system, at race relations, at the empowered... Politicians. Politicians, the empowered, taking advantage of the disenfranchised through whatever means necessary just to their own benefit. So I want you to tell me your score now because I'm going to tell you what mine is. And partly because of things like this, the subtext, the subtle things I think are going on. Spike Lee's not a very subtle director generally, but I think this is one of his better movies in this kind of regard with some of these scenes. Yeah, I would say this movie's an 8 out of 10. At least 7.5 out of 10. Like I said, the sex appeal of this movie is outstanding. We like to cover that. We like to cover the actual sports in the movie. There may not be that much of it, but what is in here is really good when you cast a basketball player who's going to become a Hall of Fame. Is he in the Hall of Fame? Hall of Fame caliber, anyway, Ray Allen. Oh, Ray Allen? Yeah, he is. Okay. He is. So all those things are good. I think Denzel, one of his more underrated performances, I think Ray Allen's pretty good for a guy who didn't act again, except in, what was it, Harvard Man in 2001. But that's it. I don't know what Harvard Man is. Never heard of that. Smaller release, I guess. Yeah, and it could have been, by the way, Kobe Bryant. He was in maybe the running for it as well. I think all those things make it a 8 out of 10 movie. I'd say something like 7.5. 
ish. Oh, about... I thought maybe you're going to be actually a thumbs down the way you're talking about it about oh, no, 20 no. minutes ago. I ragged on it a little bit at the beginning and saying it's uneven, but the reason I say that is because Denzel's performance is so good in this movie. The year before he did the hurricane. He was outstanding in that movie. Exactly. And this movie has so many good things aside from Denzel going for it. Like you said, Ray Allen for a guy that is not an actor, I think does an admirable job of trying to carry the role that he's given the supporting performances, some of which are better than others guys like, and I can't remember the actor's name, the guy that plays the agent, the white guy agent, not yeah, uh, he takes him to his house and he's bragging. Yeah. I'm not sure he's so much an actor. Al Pelagoni, I believe he's Don Pagnotti, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's his name. So his acting resume, no, he's been another, he was in 25th hour with Spike Lee, Chirac. I think Spike Lee did that as well. Old boy. Yeah. So Spike's cast him in plenty of other things. I don't know what it was about him. I loved that guy. He, he belongs in the Sopranos for one thing. Oh yeah. He's such a little white, Italian sleazebaggy looking character, but the way he delivers his lines, I thought they had just cast another agent in the role. Yeah, okay, fair. Because he just comes off as so slimy. Granted, he's only in the movie for like five to ten minutes tops, but that was a great performance. The Bill Nunn performance, the guy that plays his uncle, I thought was so opposite of what he was and do the right thing as Radio Rahim. Yeah. Now he's playing this asshole uncle. Not only an asshole, I guess, but a mooch uncle. Just a total leech of an uncle. The one thing I'll say, by the way, about the uncle expecting something. This isn't so true in our part of the world, in this culture, but in a lot of other cultures, I think the Far East, this is definitely true. So a lot of Asia, China, whatnot. And I guess we do this here, but in their culture especially, you make sure that the family's taken care of. So when you're a baby, obviously you can't get a job. Unfortunately, babies really should work more, but they don't tend to work very often. They've got very nimble fingers. Why aren't they getting in there more often? I don't get it. They get some acting work here and there in movies where they play babies, but they don't really have much range. Anyway, of course you can't get a job until you're a certain age. But when you get to be at a point, I'm not talking basketball player, just whatever. Baby basketball players? (laughs) And you can support your family. And now suddenly people like uncles and aunts and certainly grandparents are retirement age, 65, 70 years old then the reverse seems to be true. Their culture seems to be about how now you can take care of the family at 20 years old or whatever it might be. So you do that. Yeah. So I'm not saying that the uncle should be trying to leech off his talented nephew, but in some cultures that would be an automatic and a given. I think my takeaway from that was not what you're describing because you've got that scene. This movie takes place in the week leading up to the deadline for him to declare for a school. And part of the conflict is, is he going to go to school at all, or is he going to declare for the NBA draft? Which he could do. Which he could do at this point, right? Didn't Kobe do that? Or no, it was Kevin Garnett that did that. Kobe played, I think, a year overseas in Italy or something before he came to the NBA. But Kevin Garnett went right from high school to the NBA, didn't he? A number of people did. KG was one of them. Kwame Brown, I think, was the last high school player drafted straight to the NBA. Happens in baseball sometimes, too. Dave Winfield, John Olerud. A lot of people. Didn't play in the minor leagues. From high school. Oh, in the minor leagues, right. But he says in the conversation he has with his uncle while he's wrestling with this decision, and he says, oh, listen, my father just showed up at our apartment down the hall, and he's trying to get a little bit of compassion and a little bit of support out of them. He says, I'll take care of you when I go pro. And let's be honest, it doesn't matter what the hell he does at college. If you're the number one prospect at a high school in the States, you go to college for a year, and I think the assumption is he probably goes for a year or two years and declares for the draft, and you want to finish your degree later, fine. You're going to get a multi-million dollar entry-level deal because you're going to get drafted in the top 10. You're going to get your money. And he says, I will take care of you and Aunt Sally. Is that her name? Aunt Sally? Yeah, Aunt Sally. But the uncle is pushy, right? It's not, okay, I'll wait two more years and then you'll buy us a house wherever when you get your NBA contract. No, I want a taste of whatever you got going on right now. You've been living in this apartment with your sister without a job for years. And later we find out that, of course, the high school coach has been handing him $10,000 stacks, apparently. 
as a quote-unquote loan. And where does a high school coach get $10,000 at a time in cash? Is the high school as an institution in on this and funding well, this Well, their team is so successful because of him and his teammates. We see the teammates a fair amount of times, including sip. at the end. At the, at the end, with those, sip. the one can't read the newspaper oh, that's clipping. Booger. Yeah, Booger can't Is that Booger that can't? Okay, yeah. yeah. So anyway, those guys are sitting around talking about Jesus when he's decided to declare for Big State. And they're good players too, but this is, of course, because of Jesus that this team is so good. So I don't know how a high school team would financially benefit from that so much just because they're winning all kinds of championships. Look at the trophies yeah, in Jesus' room. But they must be in some kind of way because the school seems to have this kind of money to throw around. And, of course, universities and colleges have that much more to throw oh, around. Infinitely more. All that to say that it's not that Jesus was saying, no, you guys just did this other goodness in your heart. You ain't getting squat out of me. It's just, no, I'm trying to follow the rules here, Uncle Bubba. Be patient. Be patient and support me right now. And when the time comes, I'll take care of all of you. But you mentioned Jesus' teammates. And one of my favorite little slipped-in moments in this movie is at the end of it all, you've got that scumbag guy, and I don't even know what his deal was. Big Time Willie. He picks him up in his car, and he's driving Oh, that guy. Not one of the teammates. Okay. No, no, no. I don't know if he's a local scumbag promoter slash gangster kind of guy. Roger Gwenevere Smith has been in a lot of Spike Lee movies, too. Spike cast a lot of his guys. He's used Turturro and Smith and Bill Nunn, for that matter, and do the right thing. The guy plays a scummy local hoodlum really well. And he spends five minutes just trying to tell Jesus how it is, right? Why do you think nobody's been fucking with you, I think he says. It's because I'm keeping them off your back. Whether true or not, he's just trying to tell Jesus, you owe me. Ultimately, Jesus does nothing and kicks him to the curb, and we never hear from the guy again. But then at the end of the movie, you get a scene of that same scumbag guy, except now he's driving Sip around, right? Mm. The implication to that, I think is that all these people that are your best friends, that are trying to tell you that they're there for you, they'll support you, they'll protect you, really don't give a rat's ass about you when it's all said and done. They're there for the money, and the second that they realize they aren't getting anything from you or they aren't getting what they want out of you, they have no more use for you and they're on to the next, right? Yeah. So as soon as Jesus has said, I've declared now, I'm going to college, and Greaseball Big Time Willie realizes he's getting nothing. All right, who was the next best player on the local team? Sip, that's you? All right, let's drive around. I'll tell you how much money I can make for you. You know right? what? As shitty as that all is, and I agree with you, I'm thinking about a movie we've talked about a lot since we covered it on different angles. Usually the Booby Miles angle where the superstar gets hurt and then what? Yeah. But in this case, when the movie's over, a montage also... Billy Bob Thornton's character is taking all the names off the little board he has, the guys who just graduated, all the seniors, and of course, Booby is not a player at all anymore, but all those guys were going to be gone, and now they are gone. Right. So he's got to have a new team. Players in sports are spokes on wheels. Yeah. And I know that's not cool. Bret Hart's talked about it in wrestling a lot of times, about how when you're done, they should just take you behind the barn and shoot you. That's a little bit strong. As bad as Vince McMahon is. Just a little. As bad as commissioners in basketball and baseball and football and whatever are, and coaches and GMs and owners... I'm not excusing any of those fucking people, but I do understand the notion of we have to get to the next season or the next game or the next inning or the next half of this football game. Okay, that guy has a bad concussion, but I can't sit here and coddle him because I got to go do my damn job. Yeah. So the agent thing is a little different because they're not directly involved in the sport. What we do for a living, what most people do for a living most of our lives, we don't have to be that mercenary, but I do get it more in these high-pressure jobs where, okay, well, this guy's hurt or this guy's not going to deal with me or he's moved on. So back to the Friday Night Lights analogy for a minute here. Now Billy Bob is a coach of a high school team, has to find a bunch of new kids to be his stars the next year. And he may have loved those kids. He even says, I love you guys at one point in that movie. But they move on. I'm not saying he never thinks of them again, but they're not part of his life anymore. So I guess you can make that same argument with the agent, as much of a shithead as that guy obviously is. And yeah. a leech and a mooch. There's a lot of leeching and mooching in this movie, clearly. Jake himself is doing this because... He wants to get out of jail sooner by having oh, yeah. 
Well, I know that's, well, I know that's the storyline, but it's not like Jake is quite as goggled-eyed about that as some of the other people would be about the financial prospects that Jesus provides them. It's more a matter of, well, they're telling me I can get a shorter sentence by doing this. I got also to see my daughter and my son again. We don't even know about the daughter at first, actually. We only find out when he just comes across her. Right. And that's Zelda Harris, by the way. She's pretty good, too, the kid, the sister. I like her a lot, actually. She was say. fun. But in some ways, Jake's being a leech, too, because if you do what I want, then I also benefit, not financially in his case, but get out of jail a lot sooner. Right to the end, he's still pushing for this one goal, and he never asks Jesus, what schools are you considering and why? It's not an easy conversation to have because Jesus doesn't want to deal with this guy at all. He wants nothing to do with him. So I can also understand why that conversation never happens. But you're right, part and parcel of the nature of sport is... You're a time-limited commodity. Your body's going to break down. You're going to get old, and then you're on to the next. I understand it from the perspective of coaches, certainly, because even if you, like you said, really do care about the players, you're only going to have them around for so long, and then you have to get a whole new crop of players in, particularly when you're high school or college. And even from the perspective of agents, I would buy that, too. You're an agent. That's your job. I get that, too. So I didn't want it to sound like I was blaming that agent character that I said I liked so much earlier. I totally understand why the character would do what he did. He comes across kind of scummy because he's trying to get Jesus to break the rules. Even if we don't agree with the rules, they are still the rules. Yeah. And if he gets caught out, that has some very negative repercussions. And the agent is fine, but it, the player is screwed. Exactly. Where it hits harder is when you've got characters like Lala, where you've got characters like the uncle, or even the scummy big-time Willie. I don't think he's an agent per se. I think he's a local hood to be an agent, you have to have an in with the league. You have to be certified. He's just a local guy who's trying to get his taste by saying he's protecting Jesus from the local toughs or whatever the hell. God, I'm so middle class, local toughs. Don't call them thugs. Don't yeah. call them thugs. I'm not going to call them thugs. <laughs> the commentary is more to do with those people that should just love you for who you are, not necessarily the ones that have professional connections with you, although it is disappointing to see the high school coach shuffling those $10,000 stacks across the table and then saying, you owe me for these quote-unquote loans. You knew what you were doing, Jesus. Even if it is a bit of a mercenary relationship like you talked about, it should still be one that you're doing because it's your job and because you care about that job and or the players, not because you're hoping that this guy that will go on to a professional career will then kick some money back to you eight years from now. That's not meant to be the motivation. That coach knew him as but as well as any adult in his life did, too. Oh, yeah. He would have been around those players more than, well, maybe not more than their fathers because in Jesus' case, his father's not around. In their other players' cases, they probably are, or at least they might be. But for Jesus, as a father figure, I guess you could say his uncle, maybe... Maybe his uncle is always a bit of a drip. Yeah. But this guy might be as close to a father as he has at that point, too. I think you're right. And you can't really rely on him. That's part of the disappointment of the whole thing. In the early scenes between the two of them, it sounds more like just fatherly advice or an ear for him to speak to. But as the movie progresses, you start getting a better sense that this guy actually wants something from Jesus. And then, of course, they get the money and it becomes explicit and Jesus is upset over the whole thing. And I think you're right. That is the closest thing you get to a father figure. I wanted to ask you, because this is something else that changed for me. I am your father figure, so it makes sense you oh, asked me this question. Oh, thank God. I'm so happy you said that, because it was going to be really awkward <laughs> if you said no. Thank you, Daddy. I will adopt you, <laughs> even though you're, both your parents are still living. <laughs> I'm emancipating myself. The way I thought about this movie, the way I consumed it, has definitely changed huge over like the last 20 years since I saw it last. And one of the things I did not really appreciate back in 1998, 99, whenever it was I saw it the first time, was... Denzel's character properly. I think back then I viewed him as intended as a much more sympathetic character, not necessarily tragic character. This is a guy that's trying to reconnect with his son. I think he's pretty tragic, actually. 
he might be kind of tragic, but I found it very hard this time to feel any sympathy for him whatsoever. Oh, I did, because I think the system railroaded him. You, maybe you're right. Maybe. I mean, he said, I killed my wife, put the cuffs on me. But I if think he that's didn't, true. Okay, but if he didn't do that, or even if he did do that, he didn't mean to do it. I think that's a very important point here. He obviously loved his kids. He was yes. too hard on his son. But I go back to what I said about whiplash. Some kids respond to being pushed hard. Some people want that. I said that in the Whiplash podcast. What if I'd been pushed harder in some of the things that I like? I'm not blaming my parents or any of my mentors, but maybe I was the kind of person that would have responded to that. By being shown in a weird way, tough love. You're so good, I'm not going to let up on you. I'm not saying it's cool what happened in Whiplash or some of the things that Jake does to Jesus in this film, but I can also respect that as a motivational factor if the young person responds to it. Jesus doesn't, and that leads to one hell of a bad day for that family. And then, of course, you get the motif of him throwing the ball over the fence, and at the end, this is a touch I think is a little bit screwy. Agreed. With Jake risking getting shot by the prison guard, he's literally telling him, stop, I'm going to shoot, to throw a ball over a fence that then somehow magically ends up on a big state court where Jesus is working out and he and his father have made up. But I think we already got the fact that he's made up with his father and he's accepted him. You don't really need that really heavy-handed metaphor. I'm talking about a lot of subtle things that Spike Lee put in the screenplay, but that one was way over the top. It was a little much. I was getting some serious Longest Yard vibes off of that scene, too, of course. Right, right? yeah. You're risking your life for something stupid. To go get the ball in Longest Yard, which you don't need to do, and in this case, I'm going to throw the ball to nothing because he's throwing it over a prison fence. Like you said, we get that heavy-handed metaphor because we cut to the scene of Jesus in the gym and the ball bouncing to him kind of thing. Oh, by the way, a nutshell could have been... Jailbird can no longer play basketball because he threw the ball away. <laughs> Jailbird throws away his last ball. <laughs> Guess he's going to have to start working out now. <laughs> Lifting weights, he's got no He'll ball to play jacked. with. Although he was in good shape in this movie. Yes, he was. Give him a lot of credit. If you're looking at it through the eyes of Jake Shuttlesworth, why would he do that? Why would he huck away the ball and, like you said, risk his life? At first, because I didn't remember this scene from whatever I last saw. I always movie. remember this scene. It didn't occur to me. Maybe I stopped watching it. It's a sweet touch, but not a very believable one. or... I like the sentiment. I like what Spike's trying to do, but I don't think it works. I thought he was trying to commit suicide at that point. I've reconnected with my family. I'm not getting out of here for another 15 years. I can't face it. I said 15 years in total, which means he's got about half that to go. Oh, maybe it which is. It's not that long. It's shitty, but it's not that long. I thought he said to the warden, I'm looking at another 15 or something, but maybe he meant I'm looking at 15 and I've served whatever, six or seven. Maybe we have that. Well, if he's got another 15 to go, then I can understand more about go ahead and kill me, guard with the gun. Yeah. And Ned Beatty, by the way, in those scenes, he's got, I guess, two scenes with Denzel. It's pretty good. We've seen Ned Beatty twice this year already because he's the father Rudy. in Rudy. Rudy. And he also, I saw Life not that long ago, Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence, where yes. he plays a prison warden supervisor in that as well. Also sympathetic to a black guy. Yeah. Or black guys in the case of Life. Jim Brown, too. We've now done three of his movies. We've done three of Jim Brown movies? He was in Any Given Sunday. He's a coach in that. He was. And he's the father of one of the guys they draft in Draft Day. So two football movies and now a basketball movie. Yeah, he's the father of... I forget now, but he's in the movie anyway. That role in Draft Day would make the ultimate sense for Jim Brown. There's no question about it. Where is he here? Where's 2014? The new mic's in my way. It's the last one. Plays himself. Okay, that's right. He's not a father. Terry Crews plays a father, and that's who it is. Terry Crews plays the father. Yes, Terry Crews plays the father. That's Jim Brown's last movie, actually, was Draft Day. Although he's still alive. I kind of like those two characters, too, in this movie. The, the guys who are following them around, the yeah, cops. Yeah. The cops. They don't have a lot to do, but they're kind of amusing when they yeah, do. Yeah, Joseph Lyle Taylor is the other guy. So Spivey and Crudup. Or Crudup. All right, we gave our number on the movie. I say eight. You seem like you're... Yeah, I'm pretty much in agreement with you on seven that. Seven and a half. Depiction of the sport was very good. It's definitely We've, sexy. 
a very sexy movie. And have we done a Spike Lee movie? I don't think we have. No, I think this is the first one. Because he hasn't done a lot of basketball movies. There was talk of a sequel, but it hasn't materialized. I guess you'd do it when Jake gets out of jail. Let but then what's you. the drama, though? Exactly. Would you do a direct sequel in that way, or would you go... Someone else got game. She got game. Ghostbusters as The song at the end. He got game. She got game. They got game. The song that plays a few yeah. times. Maybe Jesus's sister, right? She's apparently a video gamer in this, and she kicks Booger's ass at PlayStation, which I loved, by the way. That scene was <laughs> awesome. Yeah, maybe you just set it, I don't know, 10 years after this movie in the early 2000s. Jake's still in jail. We can't really figure out what his sentence is. But We're going to let you out again and run the risk of you <laughs> running away on us again, even though publicly the story is you got out of jail and we captured you. But somehow we let you get away again. I think you could do it without Jake, though. You could have a breakdown of relationship between Jesus and his sister at some point in the intervening, what, 10 years or so. And she's now a prospective college athlete slash WNBA star. You'd have to cast a big name actor in that role then because Ray Allen would not be a big enough name to be the lead or the co-lead if Denzel's not in this. Yeah. One of the reasons you get this movie made is because Denzel's in it. There's some good actors in this, like we just said, Beatty and Bill Nunn and whatnot, John Turturro in a small role. But Mila Jovovich and Rosario Dawson were not names. They've become that since, but they weren't then. So in two weeks, we go back to the world of pro wrestling and take a look at the wrestling documentary that turns 20 this year, Beyond the Mat. You and I have now covered, or will have after this, three documentaries. Bev and I haven't done a documentary in a while, even though she and I are the documentary people, but you and I have done Pumping Iron. Murderball. And Murderball, yes. Now Beyond the Mat which is a pretty powerful film. And if you haven't already seen it, maybe we could talk about this a little bit. Resurrection of Jake the Snake would really play as a sequel to Beyond the Mat. But at least Beyond the Mat, Jake the Snake, wow, some tough stuff in this. This is not a fun movie. Well, the Mick Foley stuff is a little bit more fun. Some of it. The Jake the Snake stuff. Talk about drama. It's going to be dark. This is also going to be our third wrestling movie. Right. Which is spread out. We've not done any one sport too much. But if you had asked me how many wrestling movies are you going to deal with how close are we to 50 now? We're pretty darn close. What is this, number 46, 47? We talked about potentially doing a retrospective segment of number 50, which I think yeah, would be a fun... Yeah, a couple of months. This is 46, incidentally. Yeah, so yeah, three wrestling movies, seven baseball movies, six basketball, four boxing only. I thought we'd do more of that. Six football. So relatively balanced. If you asked me, are you going to do Ready to Rumble? I would have said, no. But then yeah, but, you said to me, but then I said, it. yes. Instead, we did The Wrestler, which was a great movie. One of our best movies purely so far. Because when you talk about the retrospective thing, we're going to talk about our five favorites. Yes. And if we're just talking about the movie, not necessarily the sports movie, then The Wrestler is going to make my top five, I'll tell you right now. Well, it'll make mine too. There's yeah. no question about it. I think we both love that movie. Even from the sports standpoint, but certainly from just the pure great movie standpoint. Yeah. So Beyond the Mat in two weeks. We're on Twitter, of course. He is at Scoring at Movies. I am at MovieFiend51. Stitcher and Spotify. And Apple Podcasts carries this podcast every Thursday, or sorry, every other Thursday. And the website is top100project.com. Take her easy, games. You got game. He got game. She got oh, game. I thought you were going to take it to your left hand and go hard to the hoop. I can't. I already said I cannot do that. I never could. All right, I'll just let you stick around as white chocolate. Then. But I do know that white chocolate will. <laughs>